At Woodruff Road, if I haven't told you this in a while, we believe and teach covenant theology. It is our public confessional doctrine. We would take a bullet for it. And if you look in the back of your Psalter hymnal, you'll notice there is our confession of faith. 33 chapters which spell out exactly what we believe and practice. And you will notice something unique. Chapter 7 of our confession is covenant theology. No other denomination or tradition has gone in print before or since with a chapter on covenant theology. There are two things that make the Westminster Confession unique. Chapter 7 on covenant theology and chapter 20 on Christian liberty. Those are the, the key distinctives that make our confession absolutely unique. But this doctrine of covenant theology is foundational to everything we do and everything we are. For example, our view of covenant theology completely informs our view of the sacraments. And so you can't understand our view of baptism or the Lord's Supper until you understand covenant theology. And we believe that the concept of covenant making is foundational for understanding the entire Bible, from the covenant of works in Genesis 2 to the new covenant. As ratified and inaugurated by Christ, the Bible is, from beginning to end, a covenantal document. To study covenant theology, you can come at it from one of several angles. You can examine the historical development of the covenant, and we've done that sermonically here 20 years ago. You can see how God begins his covenant promise in Genesis 3.15, and that promise runs all the way through Scripture, and God continually adds and gives more information, not contradictory information, but God gives complementary information, more and more truth about this gracious covenant that he's entered into with his people. Another way you can study covenant theology is you can study the parties of the covenant, and we will in some small measure do that tonight. We'll see how God graciously seeks out a sinful people and enters into a covenant of grace with them. And you can stand amazed, as I hope you will tonight, at how a sovereign, omniscient God will on purpose seek out fallen people and covenant with them to bless them. Or another way that you can study covenant theology is you can look at the terms of the covenant. What God means when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and here's what I'll do for you and here's what you'll respond with. But in our text tonight, we're going to look at two other key covenantal concepts. Watch for them because they're all through this brief text that we just read. First of all, we'll see something that's foundational to covenant theology, and that is the representative principle. Now, this sounds so foreign to contemporary American ears because we're used to thinking one man, one vote, what I do just has implications for me and no one else but me. And you'll hear silly things like people saying, well, that's a victimless crime. What that man did, that doesn't affect anybody but himself. If I engage in this sin or that crime, that has no implication for anyone else. But what we see when we open the Bible is something radically different. We see that when fathers act, they act for their whole household. We see that when elders act, they act for the whole church. We see that when the leaders of a nation act, they act for the whole nation. And the principle to see is, as go the leader, whether it's the father in the home, the elder in the church, or the civil magistrate in the state, as go the leaders, so goes the people. And the decisions these leaders make are binding, and they have implication for all those under their headship. And we'll see that principle tonight. The second idea that we're going to see 
that is deeply covenantal is the idea of generational blessings or curses. We'll see that if you as a parent think, oh, the, the way I live, the speech that I use in my house, the way that I raise my children really has no impact on them. They'll not be affected at all by my parenting. We'll see that's absolutely not the case. We will see that parents, whether it be a husband or a wife, as they pursue God in a relationship with him, as they follow hard after the triune God and his truth, there are distinct blessings for their children. In fact, God says in Deuteronomy 7, those blessings filter down to a thousand generations. In our exposition of the book of Joshua, we've come to the end of the battle of Jericho. The last details, but you'll see even these last details are not unimportant. Just a tiny bit of context. I hope you have your Bible open at Joshua 6 because not only will we look at this, we'll look at pertinent New Testament texts that shed more light on this, but we will look at these verses under a microscope. And just a tiny bit of context to trace where we've come from over the last 25 weeks or so in our exposition of Joshua, the man in his book. We began in bondage in Egypt where the Lord supernaturally delivered his people. Joshua was a young man then, only 40 years old. But now in our context, 40 years have passed by and Joshua's 80 years old. And now the Lord has, after causing his people to wander in the wilderness for some 40 years, the Lord has miraculously brought his people by a mighty hand into the promised land of Canaan. Israel has supernaturally entered the land. They've obediently attacked the Canaanite city of Jericho. They've wiped it out. Now, after a stunning victory, Joshua gives specific instruction on a couple of matters. They seem almost trivial. If you're looking at the end of Joshua 6, you think, really, that, that needs to be in the Bible? And the instructions themselves seem to be antithetical. But they're a perfect picture of God's grace and God's judgment and how they both are a product of his covenant. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it right, and so let's ask for that now. Our Father, we do plead with you that you would send your spirit in power. We need your light, his ministry of instruction, to enable us to discern. We ask that you would arrest the consciences and give focus and attention to the minds of those whose thoughts are wandering and those who are drowsy from this afternoon or looking forward to tomorrow. Press the word home to them now. Prick our consciences so that we might repent in those places where we're in disobedience. Open our minds so that we might understand and believe in those areas where we are ignorant or just in error. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Joshua 6, verses 22 through 25, and notice the conditions of the covenant that are met. Now, the key figure in all of this, in this brief uh, brief section at the end of Joshua 6 is Rahab. Now you might want to keep one finger just nearby in Joshua 2. You'll remember we met Rahab in Joshua 2. Rahab was that woman who when the two Israelite spies came from Joshua into Jericho to spy it out, she hid these two Israelite spies in her brothel. At the danger of her own life, she hid these two men, even though she was a Canaanite and a Gentile and they were Jews. She could have been executed if it had been found out, but she hid them. Joshua 2, if you're looking at it, Joshua 2, verse 12, these men came under her roof, and she says to them, 
Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord. Notice what she doesn't want. She doesn't want in that verse in Joshua 2.12, she doesn't want an oath made in the name of one of the Canaanite deities. She says, I want you two men to swear to me in the name of the living God, the true God, the one who actually rules over heaven and earth. And she says, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Now, this is what's amazing. It's Rahab, the Canaanite Gentile, the immoral woman, who asks for a covenant. She's thinking more covenantally even than the two Israelite spies. She says, I want you to swear to me and let's swear out a covenant. She says, spare my father, my mother, my brothers, sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And in this, Rahab is more Presbyterians than many members of PCA churches. Because what she asked for is a generation household covenant. She doesn't think individualistically, as many in this room do. She thinks familially. And she's thinking, I have the, this one shot to be a representative for my family, and so I'm going to ask for my household to be blessed. So the men answer her, if you're looking at Joshua 2, our lives for yours. If, if any of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, then we will deal kindly and truly with you. We go on in Joshua 2.17, the men said to her, now we'll be blameless of this oath of ours, of yours, which you made us swear, unless... Unless when we come into the land, and they name the conditions and terms, you bind this line of scarlet in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But whoever's with you in your house, his blood shall be on your head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we'll be free from your oath, which you made us swear. So now I want you to study the conditions. Look at Joshua 2, because these conditions now show up again in Joshua 6. Here are the conditions of the covenant, the terms of the covenant, in case you didn't read them as we read past. First of all, Rahab, the harlot, couldn't tell anybody in Jericho that she had hid the spies and that these people were going to come into the city in just a few days. She doesn't do it. She's tight-lipped. She keeps her condition. Next condition, she had to have all of her relatives in the house. The only way they would be safe is if they are under her roof. This is literally her and her household, everybody who's related to her. And then key, she had to tie that scarlet rope, that red cord, in her window so that when the walls come falling down the window, the residence of Rahab is easily spotted. Now here's what happened for those seven days prior. As the men of Israel, millions strong, marched around, they all knew what they were looking for. And as they would pass by, they would elbow one another. Red cord in the window. Rahab's house. Remember, keep her safe. Now notice what just happened in Joshua 2. You just saw two groups of people, Rahab and the two spies, making promises, listen carefully, for larger groups of people. It's the representative principle of the covenant. Rahab says, I promise me and my household will keep our mouths shut 
She's obligating her whole house. We don't know if that's five or 50 people. She says, by the way, I will have my whole household here, just as you demanded. She's speaking as if she can compel them. And the two men over here are saying, we'll speak for the whole nation of Israel. We'll speak for a million troops. We're going to promise that you'll be safe. There will not be one rogue mercenary who comes in and slices up you and your dad. And think about what this entails. It entails responsibility. The two spies have got to go back to Israel's army and say, okay, Joshua, pay attention now to the details. In the briefing with each one of the military units, you've got to make sure and tell them because we made promises. Make sure and tell them the house on the wall with the red cord hanging out the window, spare those inhabitants because otherwise it will have broken our word and we promised our lives would be given if we didn't spare that house. And so what you have here is this profoundly, at least biblically so, normal thing in scripture of people taking oaths and vows on behalf of others. Do you know when we see that all the time at Woodruff Road? Baptisms. You have a mom and a dad. And they take oaths and vows on behalf of their children, what they intend to do with and for their children and the blessings they're seeking. Well, now look at Joshua 6. This has brought us up to the moment in our context. Look at Joshua 6, beginning in verse 22. You'll notice that the conditions that Rahab made have been met, and the men are going to fulfill them now. And you see something very unusual in this text the discriminating mercy of God. When the walls of Jericho come down, we're told that Rahab is still delivered. How can that happen? The only way that this could be happening is when the walls drop, you have something standing for a brief period. You have that one section of the wall. Because we're told in Joshua 2 that Rahab's house is on the wall. You have this, this one section. The rest of the wall all around the city is flat. But here's one little lone tower. Rahab's house. When everything else drops, it's easy for Israel to see where Rahab's house is because it's the only thing standing. Only her part of the wall doesn't fall. There it was for everyone to see. Think about the discriminating mercy of God. I could go on for hours of concerning God's sovereign prerogative to spare whom he wills. He takes down the whole wall around the city and drops everything but leaves one household untouched. Over that house, you could just write this banner. Romans 9.18. God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and he'll harden whom he'll harden. You see the perfect picture of God's sovereign, particular grace right here. God's discriminating mercy. Now let's ask and answer it quickly. Is it because Rahab was deserving? Please. Was she sinless? No, she was a wicked woman. She's an immoral woman. But God chose to have mercy on her. That's God's covenant mercy. But notice how much more gracious God is. Look at verse 23 of our chapter, chapter 6. These young men come in, the two spies. They come in. They come back to Rahab's house. It's a place they're familiar with. They were just there a few weeks earlier. And notice who's saved. Now, if we're going to talk about terms of equity or fairness, 
Our generation loves to talk about fairness, and your children come out of the womb loving to do that. What would be fair? Well, there are two spies, two promisers, and two men were saved because of Rahab's covenant. Two men came under Rahab's roof. And so here's what would have been fair. Here's what would have been equitable. If these two men would have said, Rahab, all that we can promise you is when we come for you, you, you and one other person in your house, because that's even, two of us, two of you. One person in your house. So pick out your favorite parent or your favorite sister or your favorite little brother who makes you laugh. Because there are two of us who are saved by your actions, so God's just going to save two of you. That would have been commensurate. That would have been fair. That would have been real reciprocity. But look at verse 22 and 23. Rahab's inside her house. That house that has the scarlet cord hanging out the window over the wall where the men of Israel can see it every day when they march around. (coughs) Then comes the shout the shout of a million Israelite soldiers, and the walls drop. The sound was deafening as the walls come down. Rahab looks around, looks out the window, hears her household huddled together. In just a few minutes, there's the knock on the door. Israelite soldiers, why it's her friends, the two spies. Rahab, we're here. Rahab, remember us? Come on, hurry out. We're here to make sure that you're going to be safe. All of you, everyone in your household, line them up. We're going to walk through the carnage. You and your household will be safe. And so Rahab's escorted out of her house. And on every side, she sees the carnage. Death and destruction. People buried under the rubble. Rahab comes out. Her family follows close by her. We're with her. We're with Rahab. Rahab comes out and walks through all of that to safety. Now, that's not reciprocity. If so, just she and one of the people in her house would have been saved. That would have been commensurate. But God's grace is so much richer than that. His covenant mercy abounds. So we're told in verse 23, all her relatives, all her possessions were safe. Now, some of you have a hard time believing that. You think, Carl, this would just be too good to be true If God didn't save me, but me, my children, my grandchildren. Carl, I think it's it's probably metaphorical when God says he'll be my God and my children's God to the thousandth generation. Carl, that's the problem with the gospel of the covenant. It's too good to be believed. When God says this and promises to be the God of all grace for us in our household, we think nobody could be that gracious. He'll probably just show favor to me. But what Rahab finds out is God is gracious to her entire household. Some of you parents are thinking that God is stingy with his grace and thinking, God saved me, but that's about all he'll do. You've not understood God's covenant mercy. That God promises over and over again to be our children's God and our grandchildren's God. And by the way, And I do this regularly because we've been impacted by the ravages of dispensationalism. This idea of covenant mercy, generational blessings, is not just an Old Testament concept. It gets richer and clearer in the New Testament. Look at an example. Look at Acts 16. Acts 16, which is the richest picture of a direct statement of covenant blessings to our children. 
You know the context in Acts 16. Paul is in a Philippian jail. It's midnight. An earthquake comes, probably uh, destruction that equals what happened around Jericho. And when Paul, the earthquake happens, the chains spring off, the Philippian jailer comes down into the darkness, and he's about to commit suicide, and Paul tells him, don't hurt yourself, we're all here, we're safe. And the Philippian jailer asks the biggest setup question in all the New Testament. What must I do to be saved? And he asks the question, here's where your Greek grammar is very important. He says, what must I singular do to be saved? He's not even thinking about his family, his wife and his kids, his, the generations. He's just thinking like an American in 2023. What must I do to be saved? He's very individualistic. Paul refuses to answer that question. He turns around and gives it a covenantal answer. He says, Mr. Philippian jailer, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household You need to understand covenant theology, Mr. Gentile Philippian jailer. God's plan for blessing is never individualistic. It's always generational. God always paints by households. You see, the gospel is better than we think. God makes promises to our children, our whole house, our generations, and we must pray those promises. And this is what we see with Rahab. Was it too much for Rahab to think God would save her? Oh, her sights were small. Her whole household is saved. And look at how Rahab is a picture of the blessings of the new covenant. She's a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Let me remind you where she stands in the flow of redemptive history. She lives 1,400 years before the incarnation of Christ. So look at verse 23. We read the the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, all she had, they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. And immediately you're thinking, okay, I see what just happened. Look at verse 23. She and her Canaanite relatives, maybe, they, maybe their lives were spared, but they're going to get some kind of second-class treatment because look where verse 23 ends. They were brought out, but they were left outside the camp of Israel. Yeah, they saved Rahab, but they leave her sitting outside the camp. What kind of segregation is that? She's spared, but she and her household are outside the camp of Israel. For a moment, let me assuage your fears very quickly. Look at verse 25 and see what happens. Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all she had, so she dwells in Israel to this day. One of the clues in Joshua that this book was written very quickly after the events contained therein and was immediately included in the canon of Scripture. We're told in verse 25, she lives in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers. This account was written while Rahab was very much alive. And the picture that is given us in verse 23 is when Rahab and her household first come outside, they're put outside the camp because they need to be consecrated and cleansed Before they can be brought in, the men have to be circumcised, but then they're brought in. Look at verse 25. They're outside the camp for, I don't know, a week, 10 days. Do you know what Rahab is a perfect picture of? I want you to see the picture that God has in mind of what he's doing with the Gentiles. Keep one finger here and look at Ephesians 2. And what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2, you could just insert Rahab's picture here. 
In Ephesians 2, I want you to see what Paul says about this picture. Because we now, in 2023, we stand 2,000 years after the inclusion of Gentiles. Most of us as Gentiles, we don't think anything about being included in the new covenant, being brought in, being grafted into the covenant people of God. But in the first century, this was still an amazement to Gentiles. It was a problem to Gentiles. You mean we can be brought into the people of God? We who've been outside the camp can be brought in? We can be partakers and beneficiaries of all of the new covenant blessings? Look at Ephesians 2.11. Paul says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles, that's Rahab, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. At that time you were without Christ, that's Rahab, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, that's Rahab, strangers from the covenants of promise, that's Rahab, having no hope and without God in the world, that's Rahab, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Rahab. Because she wasn't saved any other way. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Do you see what Rahab is? She's the down payment on that. She's the down payment, the foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles. 1,400 years before Christ inaugurates the new covenant, here is a Gentile being included in the people of God, being brought all the way in. In fact, she's brought in so completely that she becomes the great-great-grandmother of the Jewish king, David. She's brought in so completely that she's listed in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 1, that she's his descendant, and the text isn't even embarrassed to say so. This woman isn't just brought out of the Gentile people. She's brought in. She's a foreshadowing, a picture of the breaking down of the walls that happened at the inauguration of the new covenant, where all the nations were welcomed into the people of God. Rahab prefigures what Jesus speaks of when he says to the Jews. You remember Jesus in Matthew 28 says to the Jews, you think because of your ethnic privilege you'll go to heaven. He turns and looks at people who are outside the covenant, Gentiles, and he says, they'll go to heaven before you. Listen to how Jesus expresses this. And see, if you don't think he's speaking at this moment or that if he doesn't have his great-great-grandmother Rahab on his mind. Jesus tells this parabolic story in Matthew 21. He says, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying salvation isn't a matter of ethnic privilege. We need to have this pounded into our brain that we have absolutely no advantage for God's grace because we're an American or we're this ethnicity or whatever. Zero privilege. Jesus says salvation isn't a matter of ethnic privilege. It's a matter of right relationship to the God of the covenant. Rahab is the perfect picture of that. She 
four sages, pre-sages, the worldwide conversion of Gentiles. She was a Canaanite, a stranger to the covenant, headed for hell. She's the first intimation of that fullness of the new covenant when people who weren't children of Abraham by flesh became children of Abraham by faith. Now let me clear this up. If anybody is laboring under any delusion, you're saying, well, Rahab, I don't know what her eternal state was. I just know she was delivered from temporal destruction of the city. She was saved. You'll see her in heaven. Hebrews 11.31 tells us so. She's listed in the hall of faith. She was converted. The only other woman who's listed in the hall of faith is Sarah. Sarah's mentioned there, and neither one of them, Rahab or Sarah, are Jews. Sarah's a pre-Jew. She's not a descendant of Abraham. She's the wife of Abraham. And Rahab is a Gentile. Neither of the two women listed in the hall of faith are Jews. And they're shouting to us throughout all the old covenant. God gives us these little glimpses of light, these little down payments of the fullness of the new covenant where Gentiles will be included. That's what we see with Rahab. Look back at Joshua 6, and I want you to see the second aspect of covenant theology that is there. We've seen God's superabundant mercy and grace to Rahab and her household. Now look at the curse. Look at the last two verses of Joshua 6, and you have this strange occurrence. Perhaps you read it, and it's one of those things that you say, oh, the Bible's a difficult book, and I'm never going to understand much of it, and these sort of things don't really matter much. What I want you to see is how important every word of God is. Not a word of Scripture falls to the ground. Look carefully at verse 26 of Joshua 6. After the city is destroyed, what does Joshua tell the nation? Listen to these words carefully. These aren't covenantal blessings. These are covenantal curses. Joshua says, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up his gates. Now let me do a tiny bit of explanation of what's being stated here. Joshua is pronouncing a curse on anybody. He's speaking of the mouthpiece of God. On anybody who will come along and what we will see, the fulfillment, doesn't happen in the next 10 years or 100 years. He's pronouncing a curse on anybody who ever rebuilds the fortification of Jericho. Because he's not just saying that no one can ever live here again because that's not the case. What we're going to see in a moment is that people move in and live in the Jericho region. What Joshua's pronouncing a curse upon is somebody rebuilding the walls, the fortifications, the defensive structures. And I want you to notice the oath that's taken. Look at verse 26. Joshua tells them, Cursed be the man. This is more covenant making, but not a covenant of blessing, but one of cursing for anybody who meets its terms. You're thinking at this point, this is just sort of battle day talk, you know, big talk. Joshua is the mouthpiece of God, and he's saying, Cursed is anyone who ever rebuilds the fortifications. And those of you who are parents are saying, well, I know what's going on here. I do this with my kids all the time. I'll see things like, you do that again and I'll kill you. Or you say to them, because you did that, you're grounded for the next 17 years. And then two days later, your kids are off doing what they normally do. And you're thinking, well, God is like me. That's verse 26. And you're just sort of imputing your ethics and your lifestyle to God and saying, God's like me, just bigger. 
He makes threats and promises and doesn't follow through. And that's what God means here. My friend, you've understood the character of God and the nature of his promises. Because notice very carefully, look at verse 26. Joshua speaks as God's mouthpiece in verse 26. And he pronounces a very distinct word of God, a promise, a covenantal promise on the people. And then notice what happens. Look at 1 Kings 16. And I want you to see the fulfillment of this generational curse. 1 Kings 16, verse 34. And this takes place 550 years later. Now, did you notice what I said? 550 years is further back than 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 550 years. Notice what I just said. Not a generation, not 40 years, not 80 years, not two generations, not even 10 generations. We're talking 550 years. Now, a bit of historical background is needed. When you just turned to 1 Kings 16, and I hope you did, we're in the reign of Ahab. Ahab is one of the most spectacularly wicked kings in the Old Testament. And Ahab demonstrates the principle, as goes the leader, so goes the people. And Ahab has led the people into degradation and moral wickedness. The people are debauched and so rebellious against God that in the reign of Ahab, along comes a man named Hiel. Here's how rebellious Hiel is. 550 years after Joshua 6, Hiel is so rebellious that he says this. I'm a Jew. I've read the word of God. I've read Joshua 6. I've read that there's a curse upon any man who ever rebuilds the walls of Jericho. But I hate Jehovah and his words so much. I'm so rebellious towards God that I'm going to rebuild those fortifications. And I don't care what it costs my children. I don't care what it costs my household. I'm going to have my way and shake my fist at God if it means the death of all of my children. Look at 1 Kings 16.34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, some of you have a note in the margin of your Bible. Look there carefully at verse 34. Some of you have a note that says what this means. With, he laid its foundation with his son and set up his gates with its son. It's a Hebrew expression meaning his oldest son died when he poured the foundation and his youngest son died when he put the gates on as the last thing they did. And the inference is all his sons in between died. Here's a man who's so rebellious that he says, I hate Jehovah so much that I am digging up ways to rebel against him. I'm going to go through scripture and find something that he forbade. Oh, he said, don't ever build the fortifications of Jericho. I'm going to do it if it costs me my covenantal future, even if all my sons die. And notice very carefully the curse that God pronounces in Joshua 6. It actually falls in 1 Kings 16. This is one more evidence that God keeps his word. Never think that God is all talk, no action. What you see is 550 years after the case, God's curse and judgment falls. Why the curse? Why does God want to leave right out there in the middle of the desert uh, a ruined, shattered heap of stones as an anti-monument, what used to be Jericho? Let me tell you why God wants this to be left just like it is. First, he does this because he wants a perpetual reminder of his power against wickedness. 
every time uh, a caravan goes by of traders or people moving, every time armies march by, he wants them to see a perpetual reminder is this is what Jehovah does to wicked men. He tears down their cities. There's a second reason why God wants this shattered heap of stones as an anti-monument. He wants a permanent reminder to his people of his power demonstrated on their behalf. Every time an Israelite walks by, they're supposed to say, see all those piled up stones? See that huge mound of rubble over there? That was when our God, who was in covenant with us, that was when our God crushed his and our enemies. The third reason why. Why God wants that heap of rubble to just be left standing there in the desert sun. He wants it to remain as such to be a terror to all the enemies of God. Every Assyrian, every Babylonian, he wants all the enemies of God to be reminded. This is how God deals with those who oppose him. And there is no real protection from a sovereign God. He'll tear down the walls of your city. How do we apply this word? We make three applications to us tonight. First, this historical narrative demonstrates a a fundamental biblical principle. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2, and it ends at the end of Revelation 22, and that is this, the antithesis of futures. We read it in Joshua 6 and in, in Psalm 9 that the very memory of the wicked is to be blotted out. But notice what the opposite is for the people of God. You have Rahab, who's now a member of the covenant community. What happens to Rahab? Because she's brought into covenant She is so prospered that her great-grandson is David and her great-great-great-grandson is the Lord Jesus. But what happens to the line of the wicked? They're shattered. Their memory is erased from history. And we see that antithesis of futures all throughout the Bible. That every person, every person under the sound of my voice tonight will either be in heaven with God, reveling in his blessings, or they'll be in hell under his wrath. If you're somehow thinking, I, well, I, I think, Carl, don't I have a third and a fourth option, my friend? You will either live under the wrath of God or you'll live forever under his blessing. Those are the only two futures, and they're antithetical. That's the antithesis that God set before us. Whether it's 3,400 years ago or today, the Bible is clear. Two paths, two paths only, that of righteousness and of the Lord Jesus Christ that of wickedness and rebellion. There's a second application, and that is the delight of the reward of faith. How happy will the trusting believer be on judgment day? Here's Rahab in Joshua 6. It's judgment day. The judgment of God has fallen, and what does she see on judgment day? She's delivered. Do you think she might be just a little bit happy on that day? Maybe in the house with her, jammed in with her some of her relatives are saying Rahab are you sure about this business are you sure that we really ought to be locked up here in this house are you sure that 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 red cord in the window is going to do anything are you sure that you can take these two men at their word their promises are you sure you can believe Jehovah their God we're told this one fact about Rahab in Hebrews eleven thirty one. she believed God Over and over again. Yes, we can stake our destiny on this. Yes, we'll be rewarded for believing this God. 
Rahab gets a reward on the day of judgment. Her faith is rewarded. Some of you are wrestling right now with this very issue. Right now you're saying, is it worth it? Just in regard to your time, is it worth it to set aside one whole day of the week and give that wholly over to God and his worship and his people? Is it worth it to raise my children faithfully in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Is it worth it to daily mortify sin and pursue hard after righteousness? Is it worth it? Ask Rahab. And she would respond with yes. A thousand times yes. God is faithful and he will reward faith. That's what Rahab finds. No one who waits upon the Lord and his promise will be disappointed. Rahab sees the faith of all who disbelieve. She walks right through them. She walks right past them. They're laying moaning on the ground inside the city of Jericho. She comes out of her house and what does she see? The graphic illustration. Here's what happens to unbelievers. And she walks past them out of the city. Oh, the delights of the reward of faith. A third application. Especially when you look at the last two verses of Joshua 6. And you see how it's not fulfilled for another 550 years. Listen to me carefully. God keeps his word. Whether it's a word of consolation or warning or threat or promise, he always keeps his word. Not one of his words will drop to the ground unfulfilled. We see him keeping his word to Rahab, even though it's just two and a half, three weeks later. We see God keeping his word to Heel 550 years later. There's no statute of limitations on God's word. If God makes a promise, though 500 years pass, God will keep his word. This should be encouraging to you tonight, child of God. As you lay hold of the promises of God and recognize that God will keep his promises, and this should be sobering to the enemies of God. If you're saying tonight, I'm counting on God forgetting his promises. I know that God has promised to judge the unbeliever, but I think he'll forget in my case. My friend, don't count on God being absent-minded. He never forgets. He keeps every promise. Your only hope today is, is not that God will have a faulty mem memory and not remember to do his word. Your only hope today is to run to the cross. Your only hope tonight is to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great-great-grandson of Rahab, to run to Christ who saved sinners not by their works but by his grace. Just as Rahab fled from the wrath to come, the only way you can flee from the sure judgment of God is to make a beeline straight to Christ. He saves sinners. He saves those who led wicked lives. He saved Rahab. And he'll save you tonight. Let's pray. Sovereign God, how we thank you for your mercy, your grace, not just to us, but to our seed after us. Lord, how we thank you for the picture of household mercy that we see in Rahab's case. How we thank you that you show us over and over again that you don't save the self-righteous, but you save sinners, wicked men and women. Press that understanding home to our very consciences tonight. Help us to believe your promise, that you promise not only to be our God, but the God of our children and grandchildren after us. Keep us pleading those promises in prayer. Keep us from doubting your promise, even though you've been slow to perform as men count slowness. Help us to see that you always keep your word, even if hundreds, 
even if thousands of years pass, that you always keep your promise. Lord, give us grace that we might live by your promise and cling to it, that we might live for the reward that belongs to saving faith. Strengthen us to walk in faith. We pray in the name of Jesus, our only Savior.